My name, if you weren't here earlier when I introduced myself, I'm Neil McCluskey. Uh, I'm the director of the Center for Educational Freedom here at the Cato Institute. I am really kind of the lesser of the co-editors of this new book, Unprofitable Schooling, which you've heard a lot about and is available for sale out in the lobby and wherever fine books are sold. Um, and I want to thank again everybody who's come here. I know the weather's not ideal, uh, and I hope you've enjoyed the program so far. Uh, but now I think we're really we're hitting the highlight, and not just because the sandwiches, I'm sure, are delicious. Um, but it's really my great pleasure to be able to have an interview today with Judith Eaton. Uh, I'm going to give you a, a, a bio for Dr. Eaton, uh, then I'm going to ask some questions, and then uh, I hope that you all will have lots of questions for her. Uh, Dr. Judith Eaton is the president of the Council for Higher Education Accreditation, uh, pronounced Chia, which has always sort of amused me because of Chia pets. Affectionately. Yeah. It's really because I'm kind of immature. Um, but so CHIA, it's the largest institutional higher education membership organization in the United States. And you've heard certainly a lot about accreditation so far today. Uh, and she served as CHIA's president since shortly after its founding in 1996. Uh, she's a national advocate and institutional voice for academic quality through accreditation. CHIA is an association of 3,000 degree-granting colleges and universities and recognizes approximately 60 institutional, excuse me, and programmatic accrediting organizations. Uh, CHIA serves as an outspoken advocate and comprehensive source of information on accreditation and its value to society. The CHIA International Quality Group provides an international forum, which I wasn't aware of, uh, to address issues related to accreditation and quality assurance around the world. Uh, prior to her work at CHIA, Dr. Eaton served as the Chancellor of the Minnesota State Colleges and Universities, President of the College uh, Council for Aid to Education, the Community College of Philadelphia and the Community College of Southern Nevada, and as Vice President of the American Council on Education. Uh, she's held teaching positions at Columbia University, uh, the University of Michigan, and Wayne State University. Dr. Eaton has authored numerous books and articles on higher education and accreditation-related topics and addressed accreditation and quality assistance at conferences, such as this, and meetings in the United States and inter internationally. And for what it's worth, just to show how small a world it is, I first heard Dr. Eaton speak, I think, at a, cl a class at George Mason, run by Dr. Fritchler, who you heard earlier. And I was really struck, first of all, by I was probably a bad person, and I had sort of stereotypes of what accreditors were and what they wanted. And your talk really sort of exploded some of these myths in my head about what accreditation is all about. And I hope that we can do that here. Um, and also, of course, I should point out, as was pointed out before, Josh Hall has an excellent chapter in this book, also about accreditation, which you may want to address, but you don't have to. Uh, and since I'm asking the questions, I won't ask about that one first. Good, because I haven't read it. Oh, good. So then I think maybe the most uh, uh, important question, uh, not everyone will agree with that, and I'll probably get to the political question in a second, but if accreditors had their druthers, what would be the role of accreditors in higher education? Okay, first, Neil, uh, thank you for having me. I always enjoy working with you. Emily, I'm assuming we're off the record. Okay, thank you. <laughs> uh, yes, we're off the record because okay. you want to be. Yes, I, I do want to be. Uh, if accreditors had their druthers, and uh, 
I've reflected on, on this question before this morning and after this morning, it's even harder to answer, to answer it. But uh, one, I think the accreditors would want to keep their core commitment to quality improvement. And you may not think quality improvement works very well. Accreditors do think it works rather well, not entirely well, uh, but that, that would remain central. Second, I think they want to be gatekeepers. They want the relationship with the federal government, and I could comment more on that later, but they want to be gatekeepers uh, with a light touch. And light touch means to them uh, the opportunity to uh, focus on the mission of an institution before judging it for accredited status and making decisions about quality. It's limited attention. Uh, less than the federal government appears to want in a number of quarters right now uh, to the connection between student achievement and accredited status. It means less regulation and just as a, as a baseline, this is the document that every accrediting organization recognized by the federal government must follow its 88 pages of regulation and guidance on how to meet regulation. So that's what gatekeeping means. I think some accreditors would like to reduce the size of this many uh, significantly. Not all accreditors are federally recognized. And I think the accreditors would like the federal government, which reviews accreditors for quality, and CHIA, which also reviews accreditors uh, for quality. We are a non-governmental uh, private sector organization, they would like us to demand less of them with regard to some public accountability issues. That's what I think accreditors would prefer. That's my talking, not accreditors talking. Mm -hmm. Well, so uh, we've had heard this term a couple of times, at least uh, in the event so far. There's often an accusation that accreditors are a cartel or accreditation is a cartel. One, which may have an obvious answer, is do accreditors see themselves that way? And do you think there's some basis, in fact, for viewing them that way? And would they rather not be in that kind of position if so? One, I think most accreditors do not see themselves as a cartel. I think, on the other hand, that as with many organizations, both in higher education, in the public sector or private sector, for-profit or, or non-profit, um, the accreditors have a culture that is, is very much focused on, on replicating itself. And that's not at all, as I said, uncommon. It's a culture that is slow to embrace uh, alternative approaches to what it does. We already heard that this morning about institutions. Accreditors were created by institutions. Accreditors are by and large managed by representatives of institutions, so this should come as as no surprise, and it is very challenging, therefore, to um, encourage, lead, uh, stress with accrediting organizations that expansion of their activities, which would involve change, all right, is something with which they ought to uh, engage with a lot of enthusiasm. So I understand why it's said. I do not believe the issue here is intentionality or, or being deliberate about, about a cartel status, which is why I push back at the, at the use of the term. Can it have that impact? Can it have it? Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of what we hear, and I think a lot of reform proposals have said, 
Well, first of all, there is a problem with uh, some people getting something called national accreditation, some getting something called regional accreditation, and people think that that is sort of largely set in stone or in law that you, you either work with the accreditor of your region, or maybe if you're a lesser institution, you get national accreditation. Is that, is that sort of an unfair view of it? And is, is there something set in law or regulation that causes that to happen, or is it no. based on something else? There, it, there's nothing set in law or regulation that makes it happen, uh, Neil, the way you described it. And I know you were laying it out, out for me uh, that way. Uh, regional accreditors are called what they are because they were developed in different geographic areas and they have a geographic base, as, as we heard earlier uh, today. They are also the oldest form of accreditation in the United States. National accreditation became the term used by the federal government. Uh, we don't use that term in, in that way at, uh, at CHIA to talk about all other accreditors and they put into that all other institutional accreditors, whether they accredit primarily in the for-profit sector or the faith-related sector and programmatic accreditors uh, in that box. Now, if you are accredited by a regional accreditor and that's the only thing you want, yes, you are geographically bound. There's no question about that. Uh, all the land grants that we talked about this morning, I went to one, if we're doing true admission about land grants, University of, um, uh, of, of Michigan, all the land grants in the, although you could argue with that, I know. Um, Michigan has to be accredited by the Higher Learning Commission, which accredits institutions in the state of Michigan. However, if you want to be accredited by one of the other institutional accreditors, for example, say the Association uh, of Theological Schools accredits theological schools, and you had a, a graduate theological school on your campus, you could have it accredited by the, that particular accreditor. All right, if you want to be accredited by one of the agencies in the for-profit sector, you can go ahead and do that. And a couple hundred institutions around the country uh, do have um, dual accreditation. Also, almost every institution has multiple accreditors, meaning uh, you have institutional accreditation and you have programmatic accreditation, law, medicine, business, nursing. I could rattle off 67, but your lunch would be done well before then. Um, and you do have some choices there as well. There's more than one nursing accreditor. There was more than one teacher ed accreditor. There are three um, business uh, accreditors. So there is some mobility. If you want regional accreditor, accreditation, that mobility is not there. We uh, mentioned negotiated rulemaking earlier that one of the things negotiated rulemaking is after is to alter that situation. So if a, if a group of colleges, or even one college, agrees with an accreditor, so the college says, we will offer X, Y, and Z course, our faculty will have these uh, qualifications, and the accreditor says, yes, that's something that we will agree with you, is what you are promising students. And it's very clear to students, look, this college says it's a, it's a classical curriculum college, or something like that, and the accreditor says, we think it's good to be that kind of college. We all agree on what you'll provide. You make it clear to students. In that case, is there any role for the federal government to say because of this gatekeeping role, no, we don't accept 
that the school teaches X, Y, and Z because we think they also have to teach A. And we don't accept that the accreditor is okay with X, Y, and Z. We say you can only accredit if they teach A. Is there a federal role to do that? I would say, well, let me, let me do it um, this way. Um, you do not, if you're an accreditor, you do not have to be a gatekeeper, meaning you do not have to be uh, recognized by the federal government. There are 86 accreditors in this country that are recognized, either by the federal government or by CHIA. About 30 of them do not have any federal recognition. They do have CHIA recognition. To be a, recognized by the federal government, you have to have a federal link. You have to have some, uh, some connection with federal money and most of the 30 that are not federally recognized accrediting organizations, and they are all programmatic accreditors, uh, either don't have a federal link or they chose not to have a federal link anymore. So if I want to start an institution and I want to be accredited, but I am not looking for access to federal funds, the federal government, at least right now, says no. We're not going to make that judgment that an accreditor can accredit the institution. Now, if you're federally recognized, you're recognized for a certain purpose. The accreditor is. If you try to go beyond that purpose and you're federally recognized, then the federal government could say, wait a minute here, uh, what are you doing? But that, the way you describe that federal government coming in and saying you can't do that uh, doesn't prevail. Mm. Okay. Sorry, uh, it's complicated. Um, well, everything's complicated, but that's why we get to have conferences. Um, so, uh, of course, if you're following what goes on in Washington, D.C., there are two things happening, really. There's been some talk about reauthorizing the Higher Education Act. Uh, Senator Lamar Alexander is the chair of the Senate Education Committee, thinks or hopes he can do that by Christmas. What I've seen, he doesn't talk a lot about accreditation. No, he used ha to. And, and I'd be interested to know why you think maybe he doesn't. At the same time, we see talk about, or not talk, but negotiated rulemaking about changing regulations. And I'm sort of curious of what you think you may like to see in the Higher Education Act, or what you might expect to see in the Higher Education Act for accreditation. And is it good, better, worse, the same as what you're looking at in, in terms of uh, regulations that are being discussed? Well, let, let me start by saying this. Um, there are certain things that the reauthorization of the Higher Education Act and the negotiated rulemaking have in common. Uh, one of those is that both those contemplating the reauthorization and those in negotiated rulemaking are interested in expanding the federal oversight role of accreditation. So. Not everything you don't like about accreditation is driven by federal uh, law and regulation, but a fair amount of it is, and that is going to expand. Uh, my little handbook here is going to get bigger. All right. Now, there are people who will disagree with me that that's what's, that's what's going to happen. The federal role will grow is the first thing. The second thing is there is, I'm struggling here, there we go. The second thing is that there is bipartisan agreement all right, there, both the Democrats and the Republicans agree, whether it's negotiated rulemaking or reauthorization, that accreditation must be, and I said must, be doing more with evidence of student achievement, student, student learning outcomes, all right, 
when making judgments about accredited status. All the criticism of schools that are perceived as not doing well retaining accredited status is an example of that. There isn't much bipartisan agreement on anything that's very significant. It, it, is, um, it is striking. And uh, third, the, both the Congress with the law and negotiated rulemaking contemplates, contemplates a more transparent role for accreditation in the, in the society. That, that's what's in, in common. Uh, with regard to the reauthorization uh, it, itself, um, I would be surprised, you know, I, I'd be surprised if we got there. My sense, and this is just my sense with regard to Senator Alexander, is he's looking at what has some, some likelihood of passage with a reauthorization, and he has been focused for many years on improvements in student financial aid, and he's, he's making a priority, uh, a, a priority choice. I think the negotiated rulemaking, and I said this a few weeks ago to a number of investors, at an investor conference up in New York. I think the negotiated rulemaking with the emphasis on uh, additional oversight in a variety of, of ways and entering a number of new arenas for oversight of accreditors is going to have a, a tough go. It's going to have a tough go because the House uh, the House of Representatives now, of course, with the Democrats in the majority, are likely to oppose a good deal of what will come out of negotiated rulemaking and their ways to prevent those rules from actually being implemented. So we might have another stalemate in that regard. And my first and third points are not contradictory. So. <laughs> Um, I'm going I'm to ask one more question of my own, and then I think we'll go to audience Q&A. I've got to make sure there are microphones on their way. Uh, hopefully there are. Um, so my last question is, we often hear uh, accreditation called, at least originally, a good housekeeping seal of approval. What, do you think that was always a oversimplification of what accreditation was, or was it never? I mean, was it accurate at one time and no longer is? I'm not sure what the issue is with that question. If the issue is you're giving a certain stamp, uh, and if you compare just the giving of a stamp to the process it takes to get there, and the process is very complicated for a whole range of reasons, some good, some bad, and there's a mismatch, I've, uh, I've got it. I think going back to Professor Hall said earlier, with the GI Bill, things changed for accreditation. Uh, accreditors uh, became gatekeepers, all right? And that was, in a way, the government saying, this is what makes uh, a college or university okay. And in that sense, it was a seal of approval. But I'm not sure I'm answering your question. Well, I think the, the sort of the vision of a good housekeeping seal of approval was it was this sort of uh, kind of Un group that was not invested in whether or not this thing that they were approving did well or not. They were just kind of the honest broker who went around saying, we tested this out, we liked it, it's good, and this confers upon you some sort of unofficial, non-governmental seal that you're doing a good job. Well, the good housekeeping seal concept came about prior to the gatekeeping. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, I, I don't think it's a simplification. If you want to argue today that it is too complex to say that accreditation means not only uh, meeting the accreditor's expectations and 
the myriad of federal law and regulation. Sorry about that. Um, you know, I think that's, that's a conversation um, worth having. I, I was thinking about, is this like consumer reports for hmm. us? And um, there's, there's a certain amount of distrust about accreditation, um, and that's kind of like distrusting consumer reports. I mean, even if consumer reports doesn't have a government role, there's a lot of reliance on it in hmm. the society. All right, so now we're going to do audience Q&A. It's going to be the same rules as you've heard earlier. Um, I, if you want to make a comment, that is fine with me. If you want to disagree, uh, that's fine. Just make sure it's kind of collegial. And try and make it as short as possible. We've got about 12 minutes or 13 minutes for questions. Uh, and also, please wait for the microphone and uh, give us your affiliation. And we're going to start with the man right here. The microphone is all the way back there, so you'll just have to wait for a second. So right over this table here. I'll try and filibuster till that gets to you. Everybody doing okay? Anybody need any water or anything? Oh good, we're ready for our question. Thank you, sir. Uh, my name is Brad Jackson from the Institute for Humane Studies at George Mason University. Uh, and I was wondering if you could comment on the role that accreditation bodies can have in uh, ensuring uh, good campus cultures across the country. Many colleges and universities have as part of their mission statement uh, that they want to create uh, cultures uh, full of ideological diversity, lots of different questions being uh, debated in a civil manner. Uh, and yet we see across the country that uh, many institutions seem to not live up to this uh, particular uh, aspect of their mission, they lack intellectual diversity, and sometimes they lack civility as well. Uh, do accreditation bodies have any role in keeping universities honest, honest and dedicated to their mission statements? Uh, that's, a, I think, one of the most significant questions facing accreditation uh, today, Brad. Um, what the notion in accreditation standards and policy uh, about a, a campus culture historically has been, is there shared governance and does it work? We've heard a lot about shared governance, it doesn't work, all right, uh, today. Uh, and, and second, does the campus institution have academic integrity? Does it live up to its promises to students, curriculum standards, et cetera? In today's world, uh, Campus culture concerns involve a myriad of social issues, some of which are very difficult. We read about them every day. What, what is free speech on campus today? What's free speech in this society? It's increasingly becoming an open question. What is academic freedom in, in the world of, of Twitter and, and Facebook and, and YouTube? What about how we deal with diversity on, on campus? Uh, and how do we deal with sexual harassment and assault on campus? Most accreditors are not fully engaged in those issues, and the reason I say this is so important is I think we in accreditation are going to be forced, whether we like it or not, and I don't know whether we like it or not, to engage some of those issues, and it's going to be extraordinarily difficult, I think, going forward. Great. Okay, so next question is, uh, I'm not missing it back. I'm going to go here, and then we'll go with Rich Vetter after that. But first, the man at the middle table. Thank you. My name is Greg Shuckman. I'm with the University of Central Florida. Um, we've heard a lot about uh, cartels. And uh, unfortunately, Senator Rubio is one of those people that talks about creditors being cartels. And he talks a lot about innovation and how we need to introduce more innovation and how creditors aren't as agile as they need to be. We've heard 
during this morning about how innovation is something that accreditors need to do. And I was wondering if you could talk about what the barriers to innovation you think are for accreditors and where there might need to be some other language, either regulatory, legislative, or otherwise, to help accreditors be that agile. All right, and, and this is an issue that we have been urging with accreditors uh, ourselves at, at CHIA, and it, it figures, and we've just revised our policy to review accreditors, and there's considerable emphasis here. Um, look, the higher, edu higher education is changing. We already mentioned it this morning. We, talked, we didn't talk about alternative providers, but we talked about alternative credentialing. We talked about not needing the degree. With all of the changes in the delivery and, and certification of education experiences, how do you know there's quality and who's going to decide that? My own view is that unless the accrediting organizations we have are willing to expand even more than they have with regard to what they'll accredit, what they'll accredit, should, should we have uh, MOOCs being reviewed for quality? Do we want general assembly reviewed for quality? Private alternative providers, non-degree in many instances, but offering a certificate. Either accreditation needs to embrace that, and it can if it wants, and by and large it, it does. And accreditation focuses on innovation in two major ways. One, accreditors look at innovation within traditional institutions. And two, um, accreditors look at partnerships. All right, between traditional institutions and say Straighter Line or Future Learn or, or other alternative providers. But what about branching out and embracing alternative providers? What about doing more uh, second to branch out to better further engage the changes, changes digital technology, the impact on teaching and learning? Um, gathering data in institutions, all right? And third, if accreditors that are out there, if the 86 don't want to do this, well, why don't we as an enterprise move forward with creating other types of quality review bodies that, that do want to do it? In short, I think innovation is central to the future success of accreditation, its credibility, I think, fully embracing innovation is essential to addressing a number of the, the criticisms I heard this morning, and I've heard those criticisms many, 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 many times. Uh, I'm not sure the cartel thing and innovation go hand in hand. Let, let me say that, but I know we're short on time, and I don't want to go back to the cartel issue. <laughs> well, uh, next we have Rich Vetter, who hopefully will not bring up the cartel issue. But you can I if you want. I won't answer I know Rich, I won't answer <laughs> Here comes the microphone. Oh, no. Judith, I only have nine uh, criticisms of higher education accreditation no, that I've listed. It's gone down, but I, because of time limitations, I'll pick on the one that Neil raised, the, the good housekeeping uh, question. To some, accreditation is largely an information de device to pro provide information to potential users of higher education, something about the quality. But isn't higher, what do you think of the criticism that I and many others have raised, that higher education is too much like pregnancy? You either are or you're not. You either are accredited or you're not accredited. Why can't you be 62% accredited or 84%? Why does Harvard University get the same regional accreditation 
as Bridgewater State University when there is a good deal of qualitative difference between the schools. Could not accreditation agencies take on some of the roles that the rankings that were much maligned this morning, by the way, I used to do rankings too for Forbes, uh, why don't you do some of the stuff that the rankers do uh, to provide consumer information? Yeah. Well, I, I, this, my personal view, Richard, is one that we would benefit from creating differentiated accredited status, accreditation for different purposes, and as you know, has happened in some countries, there are levels uh, of, uh, of accreditation, and that would address the, the quote, uh, ranking issues. I didn't take good housekeeping seal to mean binary, if that's what it means. I, I do think we, we need to get beyond that. There's, there have been many such, uh, that suggestion has been made from many quarters, government and non-governmental non uh, institutions uh, over, over the years, and I think that would provide more information going forward. There's more than one way to talk about good housekeeping seal, and I think that's part of the issue here. It's one thing if it's our industry's good housekeeping seal, higher education. It's another thing if it's the government's good housekeeping seal. Okay, we have time for one more question, and it'll be, oh, uh, I'm gonna have to go, there's a man in the, the back there who hasn't had a chance to ask a question and also isn't a panelist. So we want to give everybody who hasn't had a chance to say anything, say anything, although we love hearing from panelists too. In terms of dynamism, I'm just wondering, um, in any given year, Can oh, you sorry, just say my, my name is Mark Whitehouse. I'm from Bloomberg Opinion. Um, in terms of dynamism, I was wondering, in any given year, um, what percentage of, of institutions, uh, new institutions become accredited and what percentage of institutions lose their accreditation and why? All right, I, I can't give you approximations. I can send you to our website for exact numbers uh, on that or, or percentages. Overwhelmingly, the majority of accreditation activity, overwhelmingly in the 90s percent every year is renewal of accreditation, um, taking a look at institutions or programs that had to strengthen something uh, in, in some way a very small percentage, low single digits of institutions or programs lose their accreditation or are denied accreditation, all right? And because uh, higher education is not growing enormously, at least what accreditors look at, um, the percentage of institutions, new institutions or programs coming online, except for professions that are growing, a physician assistant, for example, was one that was growing enormously. Nursing goes up and down. Except for them, there are not a lot of newly accredited entities. But I can give you a source for the exact numbers for 2017. All right, we have time for one more question. Does anybody else have a question? Okay, so Todd Zwicky, who is the major editor of this volume. You do get to have a front, hear from a panelist. <clears throat> so. Um, I'm interested, we, we focus a lot on accreditation as a gatekeeper to the, the government, but, um, but you made an interesting uh, comment a minute ago when you're talking about Title IX and all that sort of stuff, uh, which is the entanglement between accreditation, which is at least theoretically this private body and the government, is, is very deep, right? It's, there's a lot of entanglement and it flows both ways. Um, and your comment about Title IX and that sort of thing um, raises the the contrary concern, right? Which is that the government leaning on accrediting bodies 
to basically um, become instrumentalities of the government to carry out the political agenda of the uh, of, of the government, right? So, uh, so when the Obama administration, uh, for example, was very obviously very hostile to for-profit education, um, and you know destroyed one uh, um, accreditor of uh, career colleges, uh, and basically the other accreditor of career colleges seems to have basically, to kind of put it bluntly, went in the tank for the Obama administration. Um, but you start talking about these things, the Title IX, all these sorts of things, you start talking about um, the government using the accreditors to advance a political agenda. How do you deal with that? Is that a real, is that a concern? And especially, as you said, if the federal government's gonna become even more entangled going forward, how do these semi-private bodies preserve what they're supposed to do and not become instrumentalities of a political agenda? All right. um, I wouldn't state it, Todd, as strongly as you did, but look, the accrediting organizations uh, as gatekeepers are instrumentalities of government for that purpose. All right, there's no question about it. Now, you can end the gatekeeping relationship. The accreditors can say, we don't want to be federally recognized. They can do that tomorrow. They don't want to do that, in my opinion. Second, the federal government can say, we're not going to rely on accreditation any longer. Or the two parties could sit down and, mut and mutually agree on, uh, on conditions of, of divorce. I don't sense any strong sentiment anywhere to have that done. Uh, given that, and given that the federal government is expanding more and more its oversight role uh, in accreditation, and I could take an hour and describe that, and it's part of, as, as I said, what's going on in NEGREG, there is, I'm gonna use it in a benign sense, uh, a way in which accreditation is is acting on, on behalf of the government. One of the issues in the negotiated rulemaking and in the reauthorization is tasks have, have fallen upon accreditors um, that are not related to, to quality review, and let's try to pull, them, pull those things back. For example, some student financial aid oversight. What I'm trying to get at, going back to Brad's very first question, is not that issue. It is that for a number of people, the notion of quality embraces a number of social concerns. All right, and unless the accreditor standards reflect those concerns, accreditors aren't doing their job. That's different from Title IX, which is why deliberately I did not, uh, I, I did not use that. Now, if we got rid of accreditation, what do we wanna do as, as a country with regard to the quality of higher education? That is not an easy question to answer, and one of the reasons that we uh, like this morning, spent all the time criticizing accreditation and higher education's use of accreditation, but we didn't talk about anything that we might do to change things beyond trying to get these organizations that we criticize to behave differently, and, and that, that's, an enormous, uh, that's an enormous challenge. But accreditors in that relationship are carrying out what the federal government holds them accountable for. All right, and it's depending on how you count, 120, 170, 200 billion dollars a year in money going to some 7,000 colleges and universities in, in this country. It's a very serious in, engagement. Well, unfortunately, we're out of time. I want to thank Dr. Eaton for joining us today um, and for telling us all about accreditation. Thank you.